Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. One of the features of South African life, or certainly our body politic, is the way issues can sometimes sort of flare up and then seem to wither on the vine and go away. I don't mean big ticket stuff like corruption or racism or identity politics, but a good example of what I mean started a month or two back when the banker Colin Coleman wrote a piece for the Sunday Times, or more accurately, the Sunday Times published an edited version of a presentation he had made to an investment dialogue hosted by the newspaper. South Africa, he suggested, didn't have a debt problem. It had a growth problem, he said. But he added there was a solution. SA had the wind at its back. The commodities boom was not a brief uh, windfall for the fiscus. It had at least five years in it. It was, he said, quote, a secular long-term response to refitting and re-engineering the global economy for climate change. What we needed now, argued Coleman, and led by an 800 rand a month grant for the unemployed, which would cost 115 billion rand a year, was a stimulus package that would see money plowed back into the economy and lead to a virtuous cycle of spending and growth. He was savaged in the papers the following week, but bounced back the following week, this time with a seriously famous economist in tow, Nouriel Rubini, who predicted the uh, financial crisis in 2007-2008 in tow. Old-style austerity, they wrote, with structural reforms alone, will fail to kickstart the economy. They reproduce the same idea then as before, reforms and stimulus. But the problem, though, seems to me to be that our debt really is very high. It costs us a thousand million rand a day, a billion rand just to repay the interest. Is it really austerity to simply try and get that under control? One of the people who criticized Coleman is also one of my favorite economists, Tavi Lioka. I strongly disagree with Colin Coleman, she wrote in between the two Coleman appearances in the Sunday Times. Contrary to Coleman's speech to the dialogue, she said, SA is in a fiscal crisis. We have four trillion rand in debt. Tavi Lioka joins me now. And thanks for two things, Tavi. First, for joining me. And second, for putting your hand up when you did. And for starting the argument that you did, because I think it brought a whole lot of clarity to a lot of people wondering where we are in the world and where our economy is in the general scheme of things at the moment. Why did you feel so strongly that Coleman was being irresponsible? What's wrong with a little stimulus? Thanks, Peter. I, I felt that, uh, you know, Coleman was misrepresenting facts. Um, there was a lot of information that was not correct in his first piece. Um, and I needed to correct that, and not just for me as an economist, but I think the broader public, Sunday Times is a well-read publication. I also, um, you know, Colin is an architect who worked for Goldman Sachs and became the MD of Goldman Sachs. So as an economist, I felt that I needed to put the facts out there and to highlight our enormous debt that is crowding out uh, investment in areas that are more, could be more productive um, and, and grow the economy and also uh, help employ more people. Are we able to measure the effect of stimulus if there, is, if there is any? I mean, we do give a lot of grants to people at the moment. There's, you know, welfare to the elderly, single mothers. Do the amounts they get show up in the macroeconomic data as, as, positive, as positives for the economy? They do to an extent, uh, but, but employment would do so a lot more. So South Africa's fiscal policy and, and over the years has been very redistributive um, and more so than any other emerging market 
of our size and also our emerging market peers. Um, and, you know, we see taxes going towards helping uh, the poor and vulnerable. Uh, we also saw recently the windfall that came from mining. A portion of that went towards helping um, the poor and vulnerable uh, by extending the 350. Um, that is the COVID grant that was announced initially last year. But the impact or the pass through from uh, a 350 versus a salary and including the skills that one would get from working are far higher um, than someone who just receives a 350. The other thing that we've noticed and I've tried to warn against is that the people who benefit really out of this 350 tend to be retailers. And, and that's because of the structure of our economy. So retailers recently, I think it was pick and pay that said that it's extending 200 boxes um, into the townships. And that to me, you know, raised alarm because you are crowding out again uh, small businesses that are based in the townships. And this is a big company that is doing that. And so those who are recipients of social grants and also recipients of the 350 rand grant consume uh, not in not locally uh, supporting a local entrepreneur what they do is that they consume to support um, an already established monopoly and what happens is that the share price of these entities go off the roof as a result of that and are they employing as much as they're growing, no, they're not. So the rich are buying stocks. And you saw yesterday that the JSE performed exceptionally well. Um, and the poor are, are propping up these stocks and supporting the wealthy. And so that's the other part of um, where you have this 350 and where you have an economy that is not um, really equal and, and has been allowed to be unequal yeah. in many ways. I wanted to ask quickly about um, austerity and the meaning of it and, and to ask you whether we are actually in a period of austerity because it has a it has a certain definition. It's the left in South Africa fling it around with gay abandon in order to make uh, the points that they need to make. But are we in a period of austerity now? So austerity refers to very strict economic policies uh, that a uh, government imposes to control, um, you know, growing public debt. We have not yet had very strict or severe uh, economic policies. What government did in 2012 was put a spending ceiling. And the idea was that with each year, the spending ceiling would be reduced. And um, and what has happened over the years is that actually there's been a breach of the spending ceiling. And the spending ceiling was not just to cut uh, and put you know, policies that were restrictive. What it was actually meant to do, they cut a lot of infrastructure development in the hope that the private sector would then step in and the private sector did not step in because the private sector is also worried about the future of the economy, the future of the country. Are they taking a risk in, in, in investing in a country that is very, you know, you know in terms of politics? Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of policies. There's a lot of uncertainty. Does austerity work and where have we seen it work recently? 
So austerity has its pros and cons. A recent set of austerity measures that we saw were in in Portugal and and Greece. Um, And the irony is that South Africa's debt servicing costs are three times higher than uh, those of Greece um, when Greece was was forced to adopt austerity measures by the EU. And what it did in Greece was that it was actually very, it helped the Greece economy recover. It corrected a lot of the issues that had to do with taxes and the bad utilization of the fiscus there. So they were overspending. There was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of undertaxing and austerity measures corrected that. And, and as a result, the Greece economy has grown uh, into a better structured economy than pre-austerity measures. But having said that, if you look at Portugal, it was very too strict for Portugal. It actually slowed growth and um, it caused all sorts of negative implications on its economy. And so there you have to lose, they, they, they then had to loosen some of the policies uh, to make it easier for, uh, you know, correction, economic and fiscal correction to happen in Portugal. So it depends on what measures you put. It depends on the extent of the measure because it can be too um, punitive uh, to the extent that it actually slows growth and becomes very disruptive. Um, And you can have austerity measures that are supportive of growth. I mean, you were very emphatic um, uh, in, in your Sunday Times piece back in October, where you say not all deficits are bad, but when the nominal cost of borrowing is higher than the growth in GDP, a country has no business borrowing money. Now, the Greeks never got to that position. No, they didn't. And that's because I guess with them, this is supported by the fact that they're part of the EU. So their debt servicing costs um, were, and then they had the, the austerity measures, which then helped reduce them. Whereas our case we are a small and open economy. We don't have a, a, an EU, so uh, that helps with uh, monetary policy. We have our own monetary and fiscal policies. Um, we have investors that invest in and out of South Africa, and they can put money and pull money out without any restrictions. And um, they then demand a higher premium for the for, for, for investing in South Africa or for buying our debt. And so that's what increases this um, our, our interest on our debt because of the investors and demanding higher cover for the debt that they, um, the exposure that they have uh, on South African debt. And so that exposure and that increase in, in um, that risk was not seen in Greece in the same way as um, we're seeing this risk premium uh, in South Africa. And that's what makes our debt so expensive, much more expensive than this. Absolutely. Yeah. But I presume that the risks on us have not subsided yet. I mean, we've had quite a year. We've had uh, the violence in uh, KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng in July. We, our politics are, uh, well, interesting, if not, you know, they're not unstable. It's interesting that we, you know, we remain viable in real democracy. Um, it's not as if we are a an outlying, you know, a kind of a, a democratic outlier in the world, or we, you know, we will, we're a generally well-behaved country. It's interesting to imagine to to try to think of one's self or one's country as being a little bit beyond the pale, I suppose, you know, for ordinary for for ordinary commercial purposes. What is required for us to get back to the point where? Um, where people who we borrow money from don't require such a premium on whatever risk that they are 
that they they think they measure when they when they look at South Africa. What is what does the government have to do if not austerity? So Peter, what what um, what happened after the MTBPS is that the the ten uh, year yield started strengthening. And um, that is just an indication of exactly what you're asking. What do investors want? They liked that speech. They liked the fact that um, the minister mentioned the, the st- you, that we cannot afford to just extend um, social grants without having to consider um, the money that we have as a country. So we need to be cautious. So they liked that he was very um he was very cautious of how we spend money. He also, they liked the fact that uh, he didn't look at, let's say, certain things like the commodity uh, boom, and he, he, he didn't see it as something that will be there in perpetuity, and therefore we're going to get this windfall in perpetuity, and we can then fund social grants in perpetuity. So they liked that. They liked that he also mentioned that Treasury is not um, the only decision maker, it's government, of which Treasury is a part of. So they also uh, uh, liked that. So I think as a, as a measure, what the, the speech was something that investors liked, and they showed it by um, what we saw in the yield curve, basically mean, meaning that investors were buying into our bonds and were basically giving us a tick of approval um, for all the signs, the right um, uh, words and the right signals that the minister was had made in his speech. Uh, my, my, my semi-expert question is the, the, the yield on the bonds and that they were buying was that falling or rising after he made his speech the other day? So falling, which means that okay. there was yeah, strong. Which, which means that, yes. okay. No, yeah. I, I, okay, so I get that. I understand that what he, look, he didn't cut anything because the cuts that had already been made, um, uh, the social spending cuts, what were made, had already been made by his predecessor, Tito Mbaweni. But beyond sort of holding the line, as it were, He's still got a lot of social spending to do. I mean, there's a lot of welfare that gets paid out in South Africa. Was he right, do you think, to to discount or not take into account the possible effects of a long-term commodity boom? In other words, something that it could last, I think Colin Coleman was arguing in his first uh, article, that it could last up to five years. Why not take advantage of that sort of, that sort of opportunity if it's, uh, if it's in your lap? So that's a big risk because we don't know how long the commodity price is going to last. And, and you know, even if you ask the miners, they don't know. There's a bit of stockpiling. There's a bit of a reaction to, you know, correcting after or where we're normalizing. As we're normalizing, there's a bit of correct, uh, correction post or in reaction to the, uh, the pandemic, uh, the impact on, pan- on, the, on the commodity prices that, um, and also stockpiling uh, that the pandemic had on many of, let's say, even industry. Uh, we saw that vehicle sales internationally had slumped and vehicle production had slumped. And for all we know, we know there's been a greater demand because now there's uh, production is normalizing in, in Europe and Asia, et cetera, in the US in terms of, uh, you know, uh, vehicle production, which is what, let's say, if you look at PGMs, what it's um, predominantly used for. So we don't know how long it'll last. And what uh, typically happens is that when the U.S. starts um, hiking rates, it has a negative effect on commodity prices. 
And so what we're seeing also is that inflation is increasing in the U.S. faster and in the developed world faster than we expected. So if, let's say, the U.S. then high, um, cuts rates, then, you know, commodity prices will be impacted. So there's so many moving parts to that that you cannot you cannot um, then base your assumption on something that you yourself don't understand and you don't have a great details in terms of how um, long this commodity price boom will be. I would, for instance, use that money as an investment. I would take it and then put it in areas that would generate growth and also help the, the economy recover versus making a long-term um, promise to South Africans who are vulnerable, who need assistance to say, look, we can help you for a very long time because we've got this commodity price that is happening right now. So the risks are very um, high. And I don't think that, um, you know, any minister, especially the minister of finance would make that commitment, not knowing how long the commodity boom will last. If you were, you said that if you, if you, you would take that money and put it into something that would, um, help grow the economy what does that look like what would what would help now because we've had so many promises from the government about infrastructure being built and you know ports are now going to be uh, sort of sort of semi-privatized i mean what are the things that you know give me an example of something that would that you just know 100 percent would work if we if we spent money on it so something that firstly i'll mention that you don't need money on because the private sector will cover the cost of the spectrum all that the government needs to do is that uh, ensure that spectrum, especially the currently available spectrum, is allocated to those companies that can um, utilize it efficiently and utilize it now. And it's a no-brainer what spectrum can do because it, it just enables business. It makes business efficient. It reduces the cost of labor. So it puts more sense into people's pockets, especially those who are poor and vulnerable, who rely on communication um, using uh, um, you know, data, which is very expensive. They can also conduct business. So this whole migration into urban areas to look for business when you have a skill, uh, which is which you have in your hands to create stuff, you could simply do it from your village and use the um, internet and uh, to then market yourself and anyone anywhere else in the world can purchase. So it's a very easy way of conducting business and changing the, the economy. It also enables industry. A lot of industry is looking at digitalization currently, and they can't do it as quickly enough because of um, the you know, insufficient um, connectivity. So that's one. The other one is that we know there's a huge backlog in, in transportation. Our infra transport infrastructure needs huge capital. Uh, to then take it back into, or, or take it to, to invest in, in, in transportation, rail and transportation, freight transportation, and not just our ports, but just our entire rail network uh, needs huge investments. Why? Because you, you, you're close to parts of government as well, so, you know, in parts of your um, portfolio life. Why doesn't, why is this not happening? What, what is the, why is everything so painfully slow you know i mean it can't all be covered um it, it you know working out building a railway line shouldn't necessarily be stopped by by a virus you're outside it's healthy nobody's you know i don't understand why things don't happen why they can be promised but don't happen and the the more we don't meet promises the more promises we make we're now going to build a smart city on the wild coast between port st john's and port edward i mean it's insane it absolutely is i think that 
Um, I have a suspicion that there's a capacity issue or, you know, across government, that the ideas which are easy to make, policies are easy to make because they are ideas that come up in your head and you put it on a document and it looks and sounds feasible until you actually have to implement. And implementation needs brains. It needs engineers. It needs technical people to actually put the bricks and mortar. So I think that that's where the, the problem lies. The other thing is that there are... Um, I think government is also bogged down by regulation and also, so look at Spectrum. Spectrum is, the, you know, um, companies are ready, but they are going, it's an up and down between the regulator and companies in terms of who should be getting it, how, whatever. In any other com- country, this decision is so easy. There's a need, there are people who can do it, give it to them. And then in the second round, you can, yeah, make some money, tax them, whatever it is, but it's so easy to do. Um, rail infrastructure, there's a need. We all know that we yeah. need trains. We need uh, at least the uh, railway to be fixed. Companies need to transport their goods. But at, at the same time, there's just this dilly-dallying in government. Who's going to do it? How do we do it? Who's going to be uh, in charge of the rail infrastructure? Give it to a company who can do it. At this point in our country, it doesn't really matter whether the person is white or black or colored or Indian. You know, give that person the ability to do so because actually it's so short-sighted to look at whether the service delivery would be what color a certain service delivery. I think for me, the measure should be what, who are the recipients of this yeah. And what does it do to change their lives and the lives of the, the and also the country so that the country can develop. And when a country develops and, and grows, it can employ more people. But right now, the debate is about who are we giving it to? How? What composition are they? Are they wealthy? They're too wealthy. They're white. It's they're, very depressing. It's very depressing. Yeah. I wanted just to ask you before. So. You know, the, the, the debate that you joined or actually started in, in the newspaper simply by answering Colin Coleman is such a, is so familiar in South Africa. It's a debate between left and right, good and bad, um, uh, a populist or, or, or realist. Do we just live with that forever? I mean, is that is that the way life is? In every country, I suppose, there are different points of view. Is this going to be an endless argument or is there actual an exit from it, you know, so that we can move ahead and do something? I hope it's not an endless argument. And I, you know, I, I do not argue for left or right. It is a problem. We need to solve it. That's how I look at things very pragmatically. Um, So for me with the budget, it is a, I, I, I realize that there are a lot of poor people in South Africa. I also know that many of us have been giving more than your 350s into the thousands to poor family to help them out. I also know that those of us who've been doing that over the years, they haven't improved the very the livelihoods of those people that they have been helping, simply because to sustain it, these people need jobs and skills. Uh, money is just not for sustenance. Jobs and skills are something that are even good for a person's mental health. Um, And I see it within my own family too, that a person who has a job, even if that job is equivalent to the money that some of us have been giving, 
they, their livelihoods change, their attitudes change. And that's what I want for South Africans. I don't want South Africans to be receiving 350 in perpetuity. I want a long-term solution for South Africans, one that empowers them, one that gives them a salary, one that gives them a skill. And then once you have the skill and the salary, then you can also decide years later to venture on your own and start your own company. Can you get a skill without, without, you can't get a skill without having a job for a start and you can't have a job without an employer. We seem to have run out of employers and yet we are very, very resistant to immigration in this country. Yeah, you know, the, it is very interesting because if you travel around the world, you'll see Greeks and I think the second largest population of uh, Greeks are in Australia. And you, you go to the US and you encounter all sorts of accents and people from different places. And this is what makes the world dynamic. Um, South Africa is interesting in that uh, it is against people who travel, who leave the country for whatever reason. I think that we should, as much as people leave, we should also attract, we should also empower, um, uh, you know, local talent. Um, so I, I also think that you're right, that we need companies to start employing. But if you speak to a lot of companies, they want to grow. They want to, to employ more people. I, I often say to companies, especially those that are doing really well, that you think you're really doing well with an economy that is where 44.4% of the population is unemployed and doesn't really have money. Imagine if that number went down to 15% and how many, how many consumers a company would have, um, how much money a company would make as a result of that. So companies do want to actually grow, do want to employ, do want to train. But uh, many times this, you know, th this endeavor of theirs is blocked by restrictions in government, regulations. Um, they can't train certain people because only government can train. And this you hear from a lot of the in the medical sector where there's training of um, nurses cannot be done by anyone but um, the government. So government needs to also loosen up. Uh, they need to decentralize. They definitely need to loosen up their regulation in order for companies to do well and employ. But when you're the leader of society, how do you let go of it, you know, to let it um, uh, to let it find its own way? That's all we have time for. And I'm so grateful to my guest, Sabi Lioka, for joining us and educating certainly me. I'll be back next week with another interesting and challenging guest and hope to see you then. Bye bye.